Well, hello everyone. My name's Matt. It's good to see you all. Um, as you can see, some really great things are happening downstairs on a regular basis through the Worker Recovery Cafe. And we just wanted to share that with you, to be encouraged, and because we don't get to see that uh, because they're here when we're not here on Sunday morning. So um, there's also a special opportunity to get involved coming up on Wednesday, November 22nd. We're going to be helping host a Thanksgiving meal for the folks at, at Recovery Cafe. So Rocky from First Service is going to be doing the turkey and the main stuff. And anybody who would like to help with sides, um, that would be great. We're going to have a sign up here for that in the next couple of weeks. Or you can look for Rocky. He's always around somewhere as well. So would really appreciate your help uh, with all that. Well, if you weren't here last week and haven't heard... I made a really important announcement uh, last Sunday about my future here at Commonway as, as pastor. And first of all, thank you so much um, for your incredibly kind words and your encouragement. You guys were just been absolutely amazing. I'm not going to try to summarize that uh, if you weren't here. In fact, if I could do that in 30 seconds, I wouldn't have had to have taken 30 minutes. Um, but if you missed it, please go back online back and, and listen online to that. And as I said, you'll be hearing more in coming weeks, I'm sure, from our elder board concerning uh, what's happening next. Well, we're going to wrap up, not yet, that's next week. We're going to continue our series on Seeking Shalom today. Hopefully, I'll finish it out uh, next Sunday. And for today, I want us to look at a troubling, confusing thing that Jesus says, apparently, about the topic of material poverty. So I'll just show you what it is. The poor you will always have with you. This, by the way, shows up in Matthew, Mark, and John, which means three gospel writers, whatever's going on, felt like it was really important to include this in their good news about Jesus. Anyone else find this a little bit confusing, problematic, especially coming from Jesus? I mean, this has always kind of bothered me. I thought Jesus cared about the poor. Does this sound like the Jesus you know? I mean, this is the guy about whom his own mother, invoking Old Testament prophets, said about Jesus, he has filled the hungry with good things. In other words, that's a symbolic way of saying that Jesus is going to be for the poor, for the oppressed. That was the expectation around Jesus from his birth. Um, turns out, Jesus also literally fed the hungry with the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000. In his inaugural sermon in his hometown, Jesus stood up and said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's how he arrives on the scene. That's like his campaign platform. And then a few chapters later in his famous Sermon on the Mount, here's how he begins in Luke's version. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Think of all the commands Jesus gives uh, to work for justice, to love mercy. So what is up with this? Did he have like a change of heart? Um, by the way, <clears throat> in Mark's version, Mark says the poor, he adds a line, the poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. <laughs> uh, that almost sounds like the poor aren't going anywhere anytime soon, so you can maybe get around to it later. Uh, certainly seems to lack 
kind of the urgency that I thought we were talking about this topic with. So you can see how some have used this verse to justify kind of a fatalistic belief that by divine decree, the world will always have poor people. There's an old hymn called All Things Bright and Beautiful. Anybody know it? Remember that one? Uh, There's a verse you might not know from that hymn that says, the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high or lowly and ordered their estate. Now that verse has since been omitted from modern reprintings of that hymn because it did not age very well. Um, But you can see the thinking, right? That there will always be poor people because God set it up that way. Even worse, once you go there, it's not hard to imagine rich people saying to their servants, I'm sorry, this is just God's, God's will for you. I didn't make the rules. Uh, your job is to serve me well, and you have no hope of things changing in this lifetime, so don't go getting any revolutionary ideas. But if you accept your lot in life, which God determined for you, then you will get your reward where? In heaven. Well, that's convenient. Is Jesus giving the poor a life sentence? At its worst, this verse has been uh, one of the most misquoted and poorly used texts to justify passivity in the face of chronic poverty. Poverty can never be overcome, right? So don't get too worried about it. Don't, Don't try to tackle it. Calm down. Jesus said it will always be here. So what did he mean by this? I want to look a little more closely at the context because, as always, context is really important. So if you zoom out a little bit or actually back up to verse 1 of this passage, Matthew writes in verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, pause, what are the these, thi- what are the these things he, he's referring to? If you look at the chapter before, Matthew 25, he just got done telling the parable of the sheep and the goats which in it, Jesus has some very strong words for those who overlook the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the least of these. We talked about it a few weeks ago. When we serve the poor, according to Jesus, we're not being Jesus to them, we're encountering Jesus in them, which means we actually have all the motivation in the world for caring about the poor. Now, not later, because when we do that, that person in need is Jesus in front of us. So my point is, it'd be very weird for Jesus to tell that parable and then all of a sudden switch gears and say something apparently that's far less urgent about the poor. So when he had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So now we have a clue of the setting. The timing is really important here. Passover is two days away. Jesus will have his last supper with his disciples, and then the following day, he'll be crucified. That's three days away from this moment. Then the chief priests and elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. They schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Now, Matthew is showing us that Jesus' death is imminent which then leads directly into this next story where Jesus says the thing I kind of wish he wouldn't have said, okay? Verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, 
a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. That would be weird in our culture, but it was normal. It wasn't back then. So this woman comes in and anoints Jesus with expensive perfume, and I think she knew exactly what she was doing. It was an act of devotion, an act of worship. Jesus then, in a few verses, makes it clear, and he says, what she's done, she's just prepared me for my my burial. Now, the disciples are going to have a problem with this, and their hang-up is not that she anointed Jesus. The issue is not the action itself. The issue for them is, why did she have to use the good stuff? When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, to give them some credit, where did they get this impulse? Where did they get this moral imperative within them that the poor must be taken care of and with sacrificial generosity? Any guesses? Yeah, first and foremost from Jesus. They've just spent three years following this guy around, watching him as he showed mercy and compassion to all kinds of people in need. Before that, the entire like Old Testament, lots of commands uh, to be generous and to care for the poor and the oppressed. So essentially in this moment, they're giving Jesus like a page out of his own playbook. And I think they're doing the thing like when a student really thinks they've given the right answer and the teacher's going to be like, well done, you know, you guys get it, you know, I'm so proud of you. That's, it's not what happens. Verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then here's our verse. The poor you will always have with you. Notice how that's only half of the sentence. He goes on, and the rest of it is, but you will not always have me. Can you see how this is not meant to be some kind of universal or fatalistic statement about the poor? He's talking specifically to the disciples about what's about to happen to him. So when he says, you will not always have me, he he means, do you think he means physically or spiritually? Physically. He's not always going to be around in person. He's foreshadowing the next few days he's going to be crucified. So this passage is has to be framed in a very specific time, place, like an immediate context, which means it's much less a statement on poverty universal and much more an indictment on the disciples who again and again failed to recognize what Jesus has been warning them about, his death, which is now just around the corner. The point of the story is that, sadly, only Jesus and the woman seem to understand what's about to happen to Jesus, that he's not always going to be there in person. He goes on, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. His reference to the poor always being with us was not meant to be a justification for not caring for people in need. He's not dismissing poverty as an inevitable reality. He's A, affirming the woman, kind of praising her for her sacrificial act of devotion and worship, which was very time sensitive in this moment. 
And at the same time, he's alerting his disciples who seem to keep forgetting the limited opportunities they are going to have to worship him in person, his physical presence. He's saying to them, hey, this woman gets it. This woman gets we don't have tons of time. The disciples would have many future opportunities to help the poor. Of course, Jesus was all about that. But they only have a couple of days left to care for Jesus in his darkest hour. So that, I think, is essentially what's going on. But wait, there's more. You know how some catchphrases are so well-known? You can just hear the first part and you automatically fill in the rest. Sticks and stones will... Wow. Yeah. But words will never hurt me. Now I've had elementary school flashbacks. Okay. Um, Yeah, you just say the first part, and that's enough to trigger your mind to finish it. Jesus, in typical rabbinic fashion, does this often. It just so happens that the statement, the poor you will always have with you, that that's actually, he's actually quoting another well-known biblical phrase from a well-known passage of the Jewish Torah. Now, that context is lost on us, but for sure, everyone hearing this, as soon as they hear that first part, what does their mind do? Jumps to the ending, which is obviously implied. And sometimes a good teacher purposefully doesn't say that part to let silence make the point even more. So here's the original quote in full. Again, very famous section of the Torah. It's about laws God's giving to Israel as they prepare to enter the promised land and become a nation. And this is a section dealing with canceling debt and freeing slaves, which are two extremely radical ideas that the world had never seen before. Deuteronomy 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. Can you imagine if we did this? Every seven years, all debt, reset, all debt goes back to zero. How many of you would like this? (laughs) Kind of depends on if, like, do I owe money? Or do they owe money to me? (laughs) Like, which side of the equation are we talking about here? I have so many questions about how this worked. Um, I bet it was hard to get a loan at like the six and a half year mark, (laughs) for example. Now, the idea that God would give these kinds of laws, it's so bizarre to us because our government, our economics is separate from religion in our society, or largely. For them... God was literally king. It was a theocracy, a totally different system, but all of it went together. Verse 4, and pay attention to this. However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. God's saying that the land that he's giving to Israel has more than enough to provide for everyone, which is really great news if you've just spent 40 years scrounging around the wilderness. There are to be no poor because there will be enough. Of course. Of course God never intended a world uh, where there was scarcity. Of course God would provide for life and life abundantly. But there's a condition. There's a catch. 
There's a condition to this promise. There are to be no poor among you. He will richly bless you. Key words, if only, if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised and you will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations but none will rule over you. If only. How well do you think the people did at obeying God's commands fully? Now there's debate on how much, including the command to cancel debt every seven years. Um, there's debate on to what degree this ever actually happened in reality because people being people were really creative and we're really good at finding loopholes and justifying whatever we want. So probably not great. But God actually meant what he said. And if they had obeyed God fully, poverty wouldn't have existed among them. Verse 7, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land, the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be generous. Be open-handed. Lend people what they need. And he goes on. The next few verses, he's addressing, a, he's preempting a loophole that they thought of. And, and you can read that in verses 9 through 10. So he preempts that. He says, give generously in verse 10. Do so without a grudging heart. And then we're ready for the verse that Jesus quotes. God says in verse 11, there will always be poor people in the land. Now, that's kind of funny because he just said in verse 4, however, there need be no poor people among you. Then in verse 11, he says, there will always be poor people. Which one is it? Um, I think this is God's way of saying, I know people. I know you. I know there's a chance that you're going to disobey right, because of greed or selfishness or sinfulness. But he's saying, look, it doesn't have to be that way if you obey. This is actually a choice that you get to make. And so to whatever degree there will be poor people in Israel, it's not because God's promised land failed to provide. It has everything to do with the fact that humans, human beings, were not faithful to God, faithful to each other. Verse 11 actually goes on. He says, in light of this, um, therefore, therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So you can see how when Jesus quotes the first part in Matthew 26, the other gospels, that this is a passage everyone knows. Even bringing up the first part is enough to imply the following command. And of course, that posture of generosity lines up way better with everything we know about Jesus' life and his teaching. Now, this passage in Deuteronomy goes on, and it talks about how, in addition to debt being canceled every seven years, they were also to set their slaves free, their servants free, every seven years. Again, mind-blowing, radical concept, you know, 3,000 years ago. Um, as I said at the beginning of this series... When the Bible talks about causes of material poverty, by far the number one reason Scripture gives for poverty is greed and injustice. Yes, there are other factors, like at times people's choices or whatever. But 
the, the dominant theme throughout the Torah, throughout the prophets, is God saying it's actually injustice that's the root cause of poverty. It's systems intentionally designed to take advantage of others. So then again, it's why God gives so many laws and commandments that have to do with society as a whole, government, economics, and labor laws, and you name it. He's speaking to the fact that oftentimes the poor don't have a voice in society. They don't have power. They actually don't have the same opportunities. They're trapped in unjust systems. Now, the challenge for us when we, and we've been talking a lot about this in the series, we think about our response to poverty. The first place our minds go is toward individual responsibility. What's my role to love my neighbor and to care for the least of these? And that is very, very important, and we, we, we have to keep doing that. The problem with individual charity, as good as that can be at times, is that oftentimes it doesn't get down beneath the surface to address the cause. It's addressing symptoms of poverty. In contrast, much of the Old Testament law is given to address the cause, which generally is people in power motivated by greed to take advantage of the less fortunate perpetuating systems designed on purpose to keep the poor poor. Now, what do we do with all this? One of the challenges is as Christians in 2024, what year is it? 2023, um, we're not under Old Testament law anymore. You know, Jesus fulfilled that. Uh, We're not, I don't think, called to cancel debt every seven years. And so what does it look like? We don't live in a theocracy, literally, right? So what does it look like in our world, in our context? Because for sure, God still has the same value. He sees and hates injustice, right? So how do we hold on to that value in very different circumstances, a very different context? And I just want to acknowledge um, there's kind of two halves here. There's the personal, like what are you doing? What am I doing? the relational side, and then there's the justice side. And depending on how you're wired, you probably gravitate toward one more than the other. And that's fine. That's normal. The point is we actually have to have both. And a lot of our series so far is focused on the personal, the encountering Jesus in my individual you know, friendships and, and meeting with people. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about the other part, and the part the Bible actually emphasizes a lot. Uh, structural injustice in our world, in our community. And I'm trying to grow in my understanding of this. There was a study in 2017 that found it. I actually heard this a few years ago, and I didn't, I thought, no way. That's crazy. And so I went and looked it up, and sure enough, it's true. The study found that eight men own the same wealth as 3.6 billion people who make up the poorest half of humanity. Isn't that unbelievable? You can go online and you can read their names. Now, maybe the names or the wealth has shifted a little bit in the last five years, but still. I'm all for making money. I'm all for capitalism. Um, I'm not an economist, and maybe I'm oversimplifying things a bit, but just think about that for a second. Does it seem right to you that eight individuals live on the same amount of money, have the same resources as 3.6 
billion people who are struggling to survive. I don't have any answers, but I can't help but wonder what God must think about that. Again, we're talking about a God who even cares about things like personal loans and debt when they contribute to the ongoing, inescapable experience of poverty. Isn't that wild? I thought it was. Speaking of debt, here's something a little closer to home. You guys know those payday lender places you see around town? Um, they typically give small payday advance loans up to, say, five, $600. And they're obviously meant to be short-term. I've heard the interest rates are pretty high. In fact, they're often accused of predatory lending practices. Um, I have been fortunate enough to never have to set foot in, in one of these businesses, um, and I hope I never have to. For one thing, I have a good job, and beyond that, I have a huge network of friends and family, and if things got really rough, I think I've got a pretty big safety net, right, to rely on in an emergency. But you can see how a person with no, no backup, no savings, if you're going to get a loan for $100, I think that means you probably don't have any savings, right? Finds themselves in a place where, like, I, this is all I can think to do in order to keep the heat on. Well, I checked out one of their websites from a local place this week. And by the way, this is not exactly hard-hitting investigative journalism <laughs> that I'm doing here, but... So here's the website. I had to black a bunch of stuff out, so it tried to protect them for some reason. But uh, Indiana, birthplace of basketball, greatest spectacle of motorsports, also a great place to get fast cash from place. When your paycheck feels a little too far away, come into one of our stores or apply online for up to $660 to help cover life's small emergencies. Okay. Well, I wonder what they charge for that. Well, they, I think they have to put that online. So you get the loan, you pay, the way it works, you pay the, the interest up front, but that amount of interest expressed as an annual percentage rate, an APR, comes out to roughly 391%. I don't think that's, is that good? You keep reading, you scroll down to the bottom in really tiny font, it says, small dollar loans, small dollar loans used over a long period of time can be expensive. Yeah, you think? Again, I strongly suspect God sees that and is going, what are you doing? And then when you notice how these businesses are located strategically where they place them, you almost get the sense people are doing this stuff on purpose. Could it be that there are oppressive systems built into our financial system, 391% interest, that make it very, very difficult for people to get out of financial poverty. We talked a lot about some neighborhoods uh, near our church, across the tracks that we've been getting more involved in over this past year, South Central neighborhood, industry neighborhood. Have you ever stopped to wonder, why is it that certain neighborhoods have a much higher percentage of minorities? And oftentimes correlating higher rates of poverty. Have you ever wondered, like, why there versus some other place? Why are these neighborhoods in worse shape than others? Why do the majority of African Americans live in a few concentrated areas? Interesting to think about, isn't it? I want to show you a short video of something that happened not that long ago in our city. 
It's a bit of our history that I think explains a lot of what you, we can observe. And so I'm going to show you this. I cannot stop thinking about this. And here you go. Part of section occupied by lower type Negroes. Portion is desirable residential neighborhood for better class Negroes. Almost solid Negro. Number of older German type citizens near Lutheran churches and schools. Very old type houses becoming occupied on the east portion by Negroes. Cheap class of property and citizens. Remarks like these were often listed on the Homeowners Loan Corporation map issued in 1937 for the city of Indianapolis. These city maps were created as part of a government-backed program that graded neighborhoods into four categories based in large part on their racial and ethnic makeup. Areas designated in red or yellow had the lowest ratings while areas in green or blue had the highest ratings. Nationally, neighborhoods with minorities, Catholics, Jews, or new immigrants were marked in red, deemed undesirable, and given the lowest score. This later became the basis for the term redlining. These redlined neighborhoods were areas that were viewed as high risk for new government-backed mortgages and mortgage lenders. This majority white Indianapolis neighborhood was labeled native white, executive, and other white collar type and given the highest green score for investment. A nearby majority white area was marked as blue, noting better class of Jewish race and no Negroes. Similar maps were issued for the cities of Evansville, Fort Wayne, Gary, Muncie, South Bend, and Terre Haute. Many do not realize that it was these government-backed programs and policies that caused today's neighborhoods to remain segregated and often high poverty. Let's explain. The federal government and private lenders denied minority communities access to good mortgage products that dramatically expanded opportunities for home ownership for whites. Unfortunately, these redlining effects lasted most of the 20th century. On top of redlining, restrictive covenants were used to ban the ability of people of color to purchase homes in many white neighborhoods. Here in Indianapolis, several white neighborhoods had such restrictions, often using language like, no person or persons of any race or mixture thereof other than white race shall own, use, or occupy any lot herein, except in, however, a domestic servant, not of the white race, may occupy room or rooms with a tenant or owner belonging to the white race while in the employ of said owner or tenant. Discrimination in rental housing was also a major issue further restricting housing access for many hardworking citizens. Although the U.S. Supreme Court eventually ruled these covenants were unlawful in the 1948 case Shelley v. Kramer, many continued to be unofficially enforced for several more years. The damage had already been done and would impact integration for generations to come. Back to redlining. The subsequent government-backed programs expanded access to mortgages and made them much more affordable. In the following decades, they assisted millions of white families in obtaining the financing necessary for home ownership and to gain wealth, wealth that white families who benefited have been able to amass and hand down to their children and grandchildren. However, minorities were systematically excluded from these programs. The imbalance created by redlining left minority communities with scarce options. They became subject to predatory and discriminatory land contracts that denied them the same opportunities white families had to accumulate wealth through housing. In white neighborhoods, the prospect of integration was used as a threat. Homes were then purchased at discounted rates under the guise of helping white people out before their homes lost too much value. 
This process was called blockbusting. Predatory entities then turned around and sold these houses to minorities through exploitive, one-sided land contracts. They also purchased homes in black neighborhoods for the same purpose due to the lack of credit available. Sales prices were unjustifiably inflated and interest rates were exorbitant, much higher than white buyers paid with their government-insured mortgages. Land contract buyers gained no equity, no matter how much they spent on their monthly payments and improving their homes, unless they made it all the way to the end of these predatory contracts. But most of them never did. It was a steep uphill battle designed for their failure. A 2019 report out of Chicago noted, over the two decades studied, the amount of wealth land sales contracts expropriated from Chicago's black community was between $3.2 and $4 billion. Today, we continue to see the harm of these discriminatory practices from over a century ago. The same red line neighborhoods in Indianapolis remain heavily segregated and often with lower incomes. These neighborhoods still lack jobs, banking branches, adequate sidewalks, and are often riddled with vacant homes that were foreclosed upon. The predatory lending of the foreclosure crisis added to the historical problems. An often bigger loss to those shut out of the home buying process is the inability to pass down a knowledge of homeownership to their children. With redlining and other forms of lending discrimination still happening today, there is a significant gap in home ownership between whites and people of color. There's still much to be done, but organizations like the Fair Housing Center of Central Indiana are working to stop discrimination in lending and ensure equal housing opportunities for all. To learn more, visit fhcci.org. Wow. Uh, this is a map in those red boxes. That's not redlining. It just happens to have red lines. Uh, these are all the neighborhoods in our city that had housing covenants that were explicitly racist. And again, it was overturned, but people found loopholes and ways around it, and it continued much longer than it was legally supposed to. Here's our map, the redlining of Muncie. Um, again, the red boxes, this would be uh, industry neighborhood, here's Whiteley up here, um, are predominantly African-American. Um, because they got redlined and because there was no outside investment and resources and focus, a lot of remaining white people in these areas got scared and they, they sold their house and they moved. And guess where they moved to? The suburbs. The, the new neighborhoods I just showed you on the last picture, where, by the way, black people weren't allowed to go to. White people came in and bought these properties that were, that were left vacant, and then they sold them to remaining black families on land contract at horrible terms and at exorbitant interest rates. It's interesting, too, the yellow boxes like the Old West End or Avondale or, uh, you know, Shedtown, mostly white but working class poor, exactly like it is today for the most part. Now, you could say, well, thankfully, the laws changed, and thank goodness it's not like that anymore. But the reason I bring all this up is because when you look at current poverty rates, in our community, by neighborhood. Guess how much correlation there is 
between red-lined or yellow-lined neighborhoods and current poverty rates and minority concentration. Guess what, do you, guess what the correlation is? Like pretty much 100%. Like 100%. It's almost like it was done on purpose. I hope that makes you a little bit angry. But it's, that it's not all confined to the past. They alluded to this, but nationally on average, African Americans are denied mortgages at a rate that is twice that of whites. Not 50 years ago, today. I was talking a while ago with a, a black pastor acquaintance of mine, and we were talking about racism, and he said, I'm not so much worried about the racist guy who says something horrible or you know, ignorant or whatever. He said, I can dismiss that. What I'm worried about is going to the bank and getting the same loan that all things being equal, you're easily approved for. 2019 Delaware County, 94% of homeowners are white, a little bit less than 4% are black, 10 to 12% of our population is African American. Now, I am not at all saying anyone here is racist, okay, far from it. I'm saying that we have a system built on racism from not that long ago. And while much progress has been made, the consequences, the effects persist to this day. The system was designed to get the results we're getting. And then you can imagine the crime rates or the drug addiction rates or whatever. It's like, yeah, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Not an excuse or whatever, but I'm just saying. I was thinking, I didn't say this in first service. It's probably not going to go great. Um, can you imagine, we can all imagine like your grandma talking about rap or hip-hop music, right? And imagine your grandma being like, I don't know what they're saying. It's just, it sounds so angry. Yeah, I'd be mad too. I probably have some words to say as well. Part of the reason this is hard for us to see is because the system works well for most of us. That this part of our history isn't that relevant because it hasn't affected us in the same way or we're not familiar with it. In fact, the degree to which some of this is brand new to you, it kind of proves the point. We don't perceive anything as broken because we're getting by okay. Most of us have a voice in society. You're welcome to push back. You're welcome to disagree. And Matt, you didn't say this, and you didn't, you know, and there's more nuance, it's more complicated, and all that, that's fine. We can all go to the chili bowl and fight about this stuff. That would be fun. <laughs> But please don't miss my point, which is that we have to remember that not every destitute person made choices that resulted in their poverty. That systemic injustice has played a major role in keeping certain populations and certain neighborhoods in our city oppressed. That's it. And the effects continue to this day. This is why when we talk about working to help alleviate poverty, it's a long game. We didn't get here overnight. It took decades. And so it's a, it's a long haul process. I do also want to add that as Christians, we are called to serve even those who did make bad choices that led to their poverty. 
there will always be poor people in the land. Not because that's God's plan or intent, but because of sin, greed, racism, oppression, injustice. God's saying it doesn't have to be that way. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the, the early believers took Jesus' example, his words, these kinds of commandments to heart, and you know what they did? You might have noticed that the Deuteronomy thing was about Israelites, Israelites, Israelites. They expanded it to include all people regardless of race or class. You have this line in Acts 4 talking about the early church, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. A direct allusion to Deuteronomy 15, there need be no needy persons among you. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone who had need. By the way, that right there is so far beyond anything the law had ever even tried to get people to do. And they did it freely, their own choice. They like fulfilled what the law, it seems, was never able to like force people to do. They did it out of love for God and out of love for their neighbor. There were no needy persons among them. Poverty was eradicated in their midst. This was the natural outcome of taking Jesus' teaching seriously. I'll close with this. Notice the word in that phrase that we tend to put the emphasis on. The poor you will always have with you. As in, it's the way it is. It's the way it's going to be. No sense even trying to do anything about it. What happens when we shift the emphasis from always to another word in this sentence? To with. It's not about the fact that poverty will always be a problem. It's about the fact that as, a, as Christians, as Jesus followers, we should be forming a community where those who are experiencing poverty are with us. With us. In friendship, as we've been saying. In solidarity, at our table, in our neighborhood. Would you stand with me and we'll pray? Uh, Heavenly Father, we recognize this is complex and probably somewhat emotional stuff. And we have so much noise in our culture, so much political polarization, it's hard to sort it all out. So God, we ask that you would give us clarity, that you'd help us to see people in our community the way that you do. Lord, help us to, um, the truth is sometimes hard, it's sometimes uncomfortable, but help us not to shy away from that if there are things you're trying to show us. God, thank you that you care about the poor, the oppressed, that we may not always notice it, but that you know and care anytime injustice is happening. You see it and you hate it. So Lord, help us to know how you're calling us, both personally in our own lives and us as a church, um, corporately, how you're calling us to further engage. You give us wisdom and the courage to maybe do some hard things. And in the meantime, Lord, please help us to be in a posture of, of humility, willing to listen, 
reminding us that that other person has perhaps a different perspective because their experience has been vastly different in some cases than ours. So give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you all. Thanks for hanging in there. We'll see you at the Chili Bowl and also come back next week and we will wrap this series up. Thank you.